I'd always felt growing up that I was uh, I was inferior to other people. And so I had an inferiority complex and that manifested itself. And when I got into my classrooms in high school, I was I, I knew I was inferior. Uh, Eric, I, I really think, uh, as I remember, I probably was at least five, six years old before I even went into town. Wow. The only thing we had was mules and wagons. So I contemplated driving off the Talmadge Memorial Bridge in Savannah, Georgia. It connects Georgia and South Carolina and uh, make it look like an accident rather than suicide so that my mother would get the insurance. And I, down on the floor of my car was a bulletin where I'd attended. And I looked down and it was like, I stopped at a light and I picked it up and it was like, the name of the pastor was on the back of that bulletin. I said, well, if I'm going to meet God tonight, I guess I better make sure I'm okay. Have you ever felt inferior to others around you? Have you ever felt like the opposite sex finds you unattractive because of your physical features? Have you ever felt inadequate, insufficient, defective, and insecure? Where has that line of thinking taken you? Has it taken you to a bad place emotionally? Maybe you have been rejected by someone and maybe that someone is your spouse or a family member. Maybe you feel as though life is not worth living. Wouldn't it be awesome to talk to someone who has felt the same way you do? Sometimes I need to observe others who have struggled with the same thing as I have and gain wisdom through their life experiences. Sometimes I need to see how God has carried them through their life struggles. It can give me hope. It can help me change my perspective. Today, I'm talking with a wise person who has experienced a lot of life, and I can't wait for you to hear his life change story. So, hey, friend, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is Tommy Briggs. Um, I've been in ministry for 62 years. I live in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, I'm still in full-time ministry. That's fantastic. Well, Tommy, thanks for visiting my podcast, and this is my first podcast on Zoom, so hopefully it will be okay and the audio will turn out all right. And just for the listeners who are listening, I don't know Tommy real, real well, but I do uh, have a little bit of history. He counseled my wife and I before we got married. We've been married for 26 years, and uh, before we got married, we did a little counseling with Tommy. And so Tommy has a book that uh, I would love for him to promote after at the, at the very end here, but he wrote a book, and it's a great book, and it tells his life story. And uh, I read that book, and I thought, you know, Tommy needs to come on our podcast and tell us his story. So, Tommy, let's start off with your background a little bit. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, and tell us about your family. Yeah, I'm, I am now 87 years old, so I was born in 1936. I grew up in South Alabama. I was the youngest son of a sharecropper. And a sharecropper is basically a person who farms somebody else's land and pays for the use of that land with the produce or, or the crops that uh, at the end of the harvest season. And my dad never owned a piece of property in his life. Uh, and uh, we we knew that lifestyle. But from I was the youngest, as I said, 
Uh, I have two other brothers, both are with the Lord now, and I have a living sister, but I was the baby of the family, so to speak. So you said you were the youngest and you had two older brothers. How was your relationship with your older brother? Sometimes the younger brothers get picked on and sometimes, you know, there's a good relationship. Sometimes there's not. I don't know how much age is between you, but did you get along with your brothers? I got along with my brothers real good. My older brother had already left. Basically, I have a memory of him uh, coming home from the military uh, he and his wife bought me my first pair of short pants. and But my brother that was next to me, also he and I were uh, had a good relationship, but he was like, uh, let's see, he was like seven years, there was six or seven years between uh, us. And so he was up, you know, in teenage when I was still a young kid. So you were the baby of the family. And how yes. how much older was your sister than you? There is a difference of ten, almost 10 years between us. How was the relationship with your dad? Your dad sounded like a real worker. Uh, my dad uh, and I had a good relationship. I knew that he loved me. He expressed love to me, but he was not, uh, I don't re ever remember him hugging me, but he expressed, I love you, son. I love you. Uh, he would go by my room at night and before he went to bed or something, and he would express love. But he had his own way of expressing that. And here's the thing in, with my relationship with my dad, because I didn't, I wanted to stay in school and he wanted, he needed me on the farm. There was an emotional distance between the two, uh, but I knew that he loved me. But at the same time, he wanted to teach me the only thing he knew, which was farming. I had no interest in farming at all. And for some reason, somewhere around, uh, I, I think I've tried to recall, but somewhere around the age five or six, I started out with this concept, of, I want to be somebody, and be somebody meant to me uh, finishing high school, uh, because no one in my, uh, no male in my family had ever finished high school, because when uh, you had sons, they quit school and worked on the farm when you were a sharecropper. And that's what both of my brothers had done previous to that. And uh, so I, I wanted to be somebody and I set out to, to try to finish high school. And so uh, my mother uh, actually said to my dad, if you will let him uh, stay in school, I'll go to the field in his place. And so she actually did. And I that's where she taught me to cook, to prepare the evening meal when I got in from school. And, and I did all the chores, fed all the animals, got everything that needed to be done on our farm uh, at, that normally my mother would have done. And she, was, she worked in the field in my place. It and, sounds like your you know, mother made quite the sacrifice for you to go to high school even. It sounds to me like she was uh, she basically took your place on the farm. Is that correct? That's right. And then later, when my father passed away, of course, by that time, she had started working in a uh, uh, shirt factory as a seamstress and started making money. And that's how we were able even to uh, move into town away from the farm because we were living on somebody else's property. Such so a... I was emotionally closer to my mother because of that. And my mother encouraged me because she really believed 
that I was uh, I was determined to finish high school, you know, and she wanted to help me do that and did. And I, I Eric, I, I really think, uh, as I remember, I probably was at least five, six years old before I even went into town. Wow. Because <laughs> we had no transportation, you know. And the only thing we had was mules in the wagon, two mules in the wagon. And the, the, the only memory I have about that was when we would pick cotton, cotton, we, we would, uh, I would, dad would let me ride to the gin, which was not in town. It was nearby. And we would ride on that mule wagon to the gin and then we'd turn around and come back home, you know, so, you know. Such a different culture that you lived in compared to the youth of today uh, that yeah. you did not even go into town until you were five years old. And what maybe older than that. That yeah. is so it's so foreign to what yeah, it was only 11 miles away, by the way. <laughs> wow. I went back to that part of the world several years ago for the first time after leaving in the military. And, and uh, it was like. This is 11 miles to where I lived and I didn't even go into town. That is weird. You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, as time went by, um, I uh, got a part time job uh, at uh, a merchant in town when I started high school and was old enough to work. And that part time job uh, provided the first money that I'd ever had in my hand. Well, we just didn't have money, you know, and that was the first time he paid me in cash. And it was the first money I had had that I could claim as my own. And that I'm I'm sharing that in order to know that I, I lived in poverty, but I didn't know it was poverty because it's the only life I ever knew. And then when I got out of that environment and started to school, I discovered that there were other ways of life. There actually were people who, um, you know, had more than we had, you know, there, there was a different life than I had never known. And uh, so I, I, as I said, I got a job and, and started to uh, earn some money for myself and actually work to my way through high school. What was your identity? What was, what did you think about yourself? Did you have a, a self-confidence or, or not so much? I'd always felt growing up that I was uh, I was inferior to other people, and so I had an inferiority complex, and that manifested itself. And when I got into my classrooms in high school, I was I, I knew I was inferior, you know, and to most people, according to their economic status. So you mentioned thinking that you were inferior. Is that uh, all a economical thing because your family was poor? Is that what made economically the economically and in in terms of my masculinity? You know, I felt like you know I I was tall and skinny, and uh, did not play basketball because, as I said, I worked during my PE period, and uh, so I felt. I was around guys who were had physical physiques that were different than mine. And so as I looked at them, I felt I was less masculine uh, than they were because of their physical bodies and the way I looked. Did you date you know? any in high school? 
Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> that that was not part of my uh, life at all. So not, no. So why not? I mean, because of your self confidence, or because there you didn't feel like any girls were interested in you, or uh, why did you not date? Just that I felt inferior, and that uh, I I really didn't think that any girl was interested in me, and my lack of understanding of sexuality uh, and the male female relationships in marriage in that area kept me from reaching out in that area. So in your mind, what was it, what did it mean to be a man? Because of the distance, emotional distance between me and my father, uh, and by God's design, I think fathers are supposed to lead sons and uh, educate their sons in terms of their sexuality and their masculinity. Um, and because of that distance, uh, no one in my home had ever mentioned sex. I mean, it was just not a word that we used or talked about during those days at all. I learned about sex from my neighbor, uh, boy, neighbor, a friend that I had. And he learned about it from his first cousin, who was just a little older than we were. And that was my sex education. And so I grew up with this concept. In order to be a real man, you have to have a sexual experience. Mm. And so, uh, as I have said many times over the years, uh, I didn't have sex before marriage, but it wasn't because I didn't try. I just couldn't get anybody to cooperate. Praise <laughs> God. You know, I now know that I that that was really to God protecting me during those times. So what did you do after high school? During those days, the the draft, the military draft was going on, so you didn't have any choice about going in the service. If you were an able-bodied 18-year-old, by the time you were 19, you were going to be drafted into the service, military service. And as such, uh, uh, one day uh, I found out the Air Force recruiter was coming to town and he was interviewing different seniors in my class. And so I asked for an interview and he gave me an interview and I said, you know, I, I really want uh, to, I know I've got to serve in the military, but I really want to go to college. And he said, well, I tell you what, he said, if you join the Air Force, we'll let you go to college. We'll, we'll give you some college courses. And I signed up that day without asking my parents or any of my mom, my dad had already passed away and, and we had moved to town by that time. So I signed up for the Air Force and he, I think it was like a couple of months or so before I was going in. And so I went home, told my mother, and I remember she cried all night because I had joined up without, I was going to leave home and all that stuff. And I said, well, mother, I was going to leave anyway. So I, I made a choice. And they said I could go to college, and so I did. So I did, and that was the first time I came to Texas, went to Lackland Air Force Base and uh, and did my basic training and out of basic, basic training. Uh, I was given an assignment uh, to a personnel school in Peora, Illinois, I think it was, or somewhere around that neighborhood. In personnel school, I heard of a place called Tooley, Greenland, and uh, I'd never heard of Greenland, much less uh, Thule, Greenland. 
and there was a concept in uh, the, among the people there at school that said basically there was a girl behind every tree in Tule Greenland, and so I signed up for Tule Greenland. I got to Tule Greenland to discover that there are no trees in Tule Greenland, and oh. therefore no females. Oh no! <laughs> and uh, actually, I spent an entire year without seeing a female. There were 5,000 airmen there, and that's the place I was first exposed to pornography uh, because it was very common among the all-male base, you know. That was really, I think, part of God's dealing with me even at that time in my life. But still, I came out of out of Tule Greenland uh, believing that you still, that in order to be a real man, you had to have a sexual experience. And because of my moral upbringings, I knew that uh, I, I wasn't supposed to do that until I got married. It was supposed, it was a thing that was confined to marriage. And as I said, I was self-educated and with my friends and by this time pornography and, and had a full blown uh, addiction. Uh, to pornography, uh, gain one. I found out that's what you call it later. And uh, so I, uh, my brother was a pastor also in Alabama. I met a lady there, became interested in one another and fell in love and got married after about six months. And she, I was stationed in Savannah, Georgia. She was in Montgomery, Alabama and worked for a couple of attorneys. She was a legal secretary. And uh, so after I'd go home on weekends, of course, and we would be husband and wife together and we'd stay at my house or her house, her parents' house. And sometimes we'd get a hotel and so forth and just be together for the weekend. And we did that off and on uh, as I was able to come home. And after about three months, my brother, who was her pastor also, uh, call me and said, you need to come home. Your wife's in the hospital. And so I came home and uh, she was having a miscarriage and uh, I stayed with her and we got all that worked out and she was living with her parents, as I said, until I could get out of the Air Force. And my plan was that she would work and we'd save money and I would save money and then we would get, live our lives together. And so I went back to the base and uh, was back a couple of times, I think. And then about three months later, my brother called me again and he said, you need to come home. And I said, well, what, what's the problem? He said, well, as a pastor, I can't break confidence. But I've talked to your wife and I, I feel like it's really important for you to come home. And so I got a pass and got leave, went home, went to my wife's parents early in the morning. I got in late at night, so I stayed at my mother's house until the morning. Early in the morning, went to her house, and she invited me in. Her parents were there. They greeted me, and they left the room. And uh, basically, she said, we made a mistake in getting married, and I'm, I'm not going to be your wife and I want you to file for a divorce. And I said, oh no, that's not gonna happen. We took our vows and 
So you just pack up your stuff and you're going back to Savannah with me and we'll find an apartment and we'll, we'll work things out. And she looked at me and said, I'm not going. And I said, well, you're my wife and you're supposed to go with me. And she said, I, I, I'm telling you, I'm not going. And so I said, well, get your parents in. And they, so they came in and, and they already knew what was happening. And I, I explained to them, I said, we're married. And I've asked her to pack her stuff and to go back to Savannah with me. And our parents said, oh, you should go with him. Oh, he's your husband and he's wanting to work marriage out and you should go. And she looked at her parents and said, I'm not going. And, um, so we talked and talked and I tried to persuade her all day long, you know, that she should go with me. And finally, she just said, you need to leave. Uh, we've had our conversation and uh, you filed for divorce and I don't want anything. I just want out of marriage. We made a mistake. Well, from that day to this, I've never seen her again. And I went back to the base. Uh, and one of the things that had never happened in our family was divorce. We were in poverty, but divorce was not a conversation piece at all. It never happened to anyone in our family. And as a result of that, uh, she actually filed the papers for divorce and sent them to me. And I got an attorney and he looked at my, the papers and he said, she doesn't want anything. She said, she just wants out of marriage and I'd advise you to sign them. You've done everything you know to do to save the marriage. So I signed the papers and sent them back. Went back to the base and actually got so depressed and discouraged because I was, I brought this divorce thing on my family and actually contemplated my suicide. I, I figured out a way that I could do that. And I had an insurance policy on my life and my mother was the beneficiary. I changed that after the divorce. And uh, so I contemplated driving off the Talmadge Memorial Bridge in Savannah, Georgia, it connects Georgia and South Carolina and uh, make it look like an accident rather than suicide so that my mother would get the insurance. No. And so I left the base. Uh, on September the 15th, 1959. And uh, as I left the base, uh, in those days, there was a, they, they printed the name of the pastor on the back of the bulletin. It was a church bulletin. And I had been attending uh, occasionally Arsley Park Baptist Church, Arsley Park Baptist Church in Savannah. And I, down on the floor of my car was a bulletin where I'd attended and I looked down and it was like, I stopped at a light and I picked it up and it was like the name of the pastor was on the back of that bulletin. And I said, well, if I'm going to meet God tonight, I guess I better make sure I'm okay. You know? So I found his address, found his house, drove to his house and he was, I saw him from his window. He had a big picture window and he was reading his Bible on the inside. I'd never met the man, never talked to him before. I went to the door, I was in uniform, and he I knocked on his door, he came to the door and invited me in. I, I told him about my divorce and talked 
shared with me on and on. And he said, well, he said, you you did everything you could to save the marriage. The, the problem is with her, not with you necessarily. Although you're married and you're the head of the relationship, at the same time, you can't make her do what she don't, does not want to do. And she said, he said, so you go on with your life, you know? And I said, well, you know, there's just never been a divorce in my family. He said, well, it's not the unpardonable sin. God says he hates divorce, but you can be forgiven for divorce, you know? So he was very kind and talked to me for a while. And uh, finally, when, one time he just started talking to me about uh, my relationship with the Lord. And I told him, I said, I came to your church and there's the bulletin. That's how I found you. I, I was, I've gone to church off and on in Sunday school most of my younger life. And he said, well, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your personal private relationship with the Lord, with Jesus Christ. And the more he talked, it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I know about God and I, I read my Bible, but I don't know. You're talking about something that I don't understand. And I've been baptized twice, you know, already, you know. And I said, I've been baptized. And he said, well, he said, why don't we just settle this issue? He said, let me just lead you in a sinner's prayer. And we'll nail it down that today you're accepting Jesus Christ and you're inviting him into your life and you're going to have a relationship with him. And so I prayed the sinner's prayer after him. I now know that's what it was. I didn't know it at the time. And so I left his house, you know, and he said, okay, I want you to write this down. September the 16th, 1225 in the morning, you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. So I wrote it down. September the 16th, 1225 in the morning, Savannah, Georgia, I accepted the Lord. So the next day, I'm walking back. Uh, I had planned my suicide, and I planned uh, my best friend was in a squadron, uh, a different squadron than I was in, but I would planned for he and I to have lunch together. We go to Chow Hall together, quote. And I'd arranged to meet him for lunch so that if I didn't show up, he would report me missing as if my first sergeant wouldn't have reported me missing. I wanted to be sure everybody knew I was gone, you know. And so I was walking to meet him for lunch. And before he, I get to him, he, he called me Tom. He said, hey, Tom, what happened to you? And he didn't know anything about where I'd been the night before or whatever. He said, what happened to you? And I said, what are you talking about? What happened to me? He said, something's happened to you. You look different. And by this time, he's face to face. And he said, I said, what do you mean I look different? He said, you're walking with your head up. You have a smile on your face. I haven't seen you smile in months. And he said, you're walking straight up. And you always had your head down up until now. And I didn't know that was happening to me. But, and I said, well, I went to the, past, the pastor's house last night and accepted Jesus. And he said, man, did you ever, you got a dose of it. 
adulthood, you look totally different. And that was my first evidence that something had happened in my life, you know. And then it moved on. I, well, of course, got active in church. Uh, uh, met the woman that later became my wife. She was a church secretary in those days. Go. So let me ask you a question. So God used suicide to save your life. Yeah. It's the night I found the Lord. Absolutely. Amen. That's that's powerful. It is. It's it's absolutely unbelievable how the Lord was had His hand on me. You know, He was protecting me, and I didn't know that at all. You know, and uh, from that night forward, though, everything was different. Thanks, Tommy, for sharing part of your story with us. Join us in the next episode to hear the rest of Tommy's story. You won't be disappointed. If you are interested in a more detailed version of Tommy's story, you can search Tommy Briggs on Amazon.com and order his book called I Wish I'd Known. It's a real keeper. Hey, if you are listening today and you feel inadequate, insecure, or insufficient in who you think you are, if you feel like life is not worth living, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. You are valuable, and God has a plan for your life as you receive Jesus Christ as your higher power. Jeremiah 29 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you have Jesus Christ living in you, then you are a child of God. If you don't have Jesus Christ living in you, then why not accept him into your life as Tommy did? It will change your life. God has a plan and he can help you change the direction of your life. But if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.